Hello, and welcome to part one of episode 28 of DesignEDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In part one of this episode, we will be discussing design workflow, and in part two, we will continue the conversation by discussing responsive web design and the web as a medium in contrast to print design. Today, we have two guests. Celie Pines is the co-founder and director of Design Week Portland, the host of Creative Mornings in Portland, and digital creative director at Fine. She's been working as a designer for over 15 years and is passionate about the value of design and the power of creative discourse. Our other guest is Mark Hoffman, the Director of Interactive Technology at Fine. He has been coding for the web since 1995 when all the links were blue, and he is also a cat enthusiast and an occasional game developer. Welcome, Celia and Mark. Thanks for having Hi, us. Thanks. Um, so before I dive into the questions, I want to give my guests and the listeners the impetus of this and the next few episodes of this podcast. Currently, I'm working on revamping the curriculum of two courses uh, this summer, a standard design technology course where students learn the Adobe Creative Suite and a uh, beginning responsive web design course. So while the questions are going to be specific to design technology um, workflow and critiquing and testing responsive web designs, uh, I feel a lot of my fellow design educators are struggling to find the right balance themselves with this stuff. And I think that we'll find this line of you know um, questioning useful. So instead of teaching the Adobe Creative Suite, because there's tutorials out there from, you know, everywhere from lynda.com to Skillshare. Um, I want to, instead of teaching that, I want to teach things that are much harder to find online, um, like workflow, which I define as everything from how you name files and use version control to using project management and communication tools. So my first question is about design workflow. How prepared or underprepared are entry-level designers when it comes to the basics like properly naming files, um, their naming conventions, and do they use any kind of version control when you get them? Um, so on the design side, we don't actually use version control here. We do use it on the development side. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a very structured way of managing files on our server. And typically we give um, new designers the rundown on how we structure those folders. They're basically organized by client and then by project. And then within each project folder, we have all the phases of, of work. Um, so that's usually administration that's kind of broken out. Um, discovery, which is the, the phase where we're kind of defining the project, um, design, production, and post-launch edits. Um, the production folder doesn't have much to do with code because all of our code is managed 
um, inversion control. It's more um, production files on the design side. So um, here we have a process where we typically have three designers working on a new project. So the, the deepest area of the um, file management challenge here is in that design folder within the project. And there we break things out to include original assets so that we can keep those organized and separate um, to rounds of creative. And within each one of those rounds, um, we break it out the way that it makes sense. So often in the first round, like I said, we have three designers. So within that first round, you'll see three folders that are named for the designers because that's how we kind of keep things straight here. We know who worked on which direction for a client. Um, so we can see their original files there. As we move into later phases of work, um, it's usually only one designer, so it starts getting organized a little bit more by uh, the structure of the, the site. And then, you know, like I said, for the production piece, we're usually just kind of keeping final files. We also have a production guide that we put together for handoffs with developers, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, you know, final fonts, um, prep PSDs for assets if they have some kind of special moves that, that make it easier to batch in its own Photoshop file. Um, and post-launch edits get organized by basically the scope of work. So if there's an addition of a section or something like that, then it has its own folder with its own PSDs. Each designer has their own method for doing version control on their own work. So often you'll see designers kind of naming their files based on the, the client, the project, and the phase of work. So we call the first round R1, and so files tend to get appended with R1. And then you'll see some designers kind of getting into a letter system where it's like R1A, R1B, R1C. <laughs> Every round of feedback has a stopping point that you could go back to um, if you wanted to reference an earlier phase of work. We typically have um, a, we have a very, very well-defined um, critique structure around that first round of work. So files tend to end up falling in line with that. Um, the first meeting that we have is, is usually based on research and mood boards and so those files are kind of their own flavor and then once we get into the actual development of the concept um, there are three core critiques usually unless we need a fourth which sometimes does happen um, and designers tend to keep files for the winning design in each you know whatever they presented in that meeting gets um, put into the directory for posterity. And so we usually have, you know, three versions until presentation. Um, I have that. Thanks for that. Like that was a crazy thorough response. I love it. Um, I do have one question about with, um, it could be any kind of file, but I'll just use the fonts um, as an example. So, you know, you've got a, a bucket of fonts sitting on your computer. Do you dump 
so they're sitting on the computer, but do you also then throw them into the assets folder that's sitting with the client project? So now you have like kind of two copies of it. So it, you know, those fonts then move along. We do. Um, The ideal scenario is that we have a central repository of fonts that the studio owns on our client server, which are a resource for all of our designers. Although now, of course, like, you know, there's Typekit and there are all these other ways to access fonts through the creative suite, um, which we also utilize. But for the core assets of the studio, we have those organized centrally. Then designers do have some local fonts um, and then also use Typekit. And when we close out a round of creative, the ideal scenario is that the typeface and any other sort of core assets depending, I mean, we're talking specifically right now about digital, so this is less of a thing, but with some of the print work that we do, mm-hmm. you would have all of the original files for the links that you're using in a in an InDesign file or, you know, whatever supporting um, files that you need for it to be self-contained because for us there's um, commonly a, a project that resuscitates from the dead a designer who worked on it originally is either no longer at the studio or is um, busy doing something else and someone else needs to jump into it and it basically needs to be this self-contained universe that can translate directly to a new designer and give them everything that they need to work on the project without any of those holes where you're searching for a typeface or you're searching for an asset or, you know, it kind of needs to all be there. Great, because I, I struggled with that with the students. And, it, and the other one that came to mind is photos. So they all have their photos sitting in iPhoto or however, you know, they they manage it. And then they end up using one for their piece, but then they have to recrop it. And, you know, then they can't find it. And so mm-hmm. just wanted to see how everybody handled that. So that's yeah. good. For us, there's often... Um, a central, like I said, a central repository of client assets. And that's um, both what we get delivered to us uh, because often clients have developed an asset library of their own. And then in addition, we, we keep a folder of anything that we've purchased for them, sort of the original resolution that we purchased so that you're not ever hunting for that kind of stuff in a Photoshop file or losing the original um, resolution of that image. All right. Um, So I want to ask another question. uh, And this is when I personally assign a project. I give students uh, a design brief um, with project details and deadlines and all kinds of requirements. And I neatly type all that up and and put it on a blog post for them. when you start working with a client, I'm pretty sure they don't do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so how does how does this process work at Fine? Is there a project manager or an art director that's using something like Basecamp to like start this, or how does that work? So we do have um, a whole phase of work um, called discovery that is essentially its purpose is to define all of the things that you are defining for your students and eventually to come up with a core strategy and a brief. Um, We have a couple of folks who are on the front lines of new projects and they tend to be either the partners or senior level folks in the studio. 
And they, in initial sales conversations, will be starting to define roughly what the shape of the project is. And then there's a whole, um, a whole process by which they start pulling in the core team at the front end, uh, which includes the original person that brought in the business. So that's typically, again, a partner um, or a strategist that has already been kind of starting to wade into the, the shape of things and put a scope of work together. They pull in a project manager, um, a creative director gets pulled in, and often a senior level tech person when there's an exotic new thing about the project that that is something maybe outside the level of um, familiarity that a creative director or a strategist might have. We, we do have um, some pretty confident uh, types of projects that repeat, um, you know, not necessarily in creative product, but in the scope and the technical, um, the technical, uh, configuration that we're expecting. And so there's not always necessarily, you know, super exotic technical stuff to be sussing out at the front end. Uh, but when there is, then the full range of disciplines is on board. And then we start doing, um, interviews with the client to understand, um, all of the various things that they're trying to solve. And this is a really mushy part of the process where, you know, a client can think that they're coming to you for something, but in fact, as you start digging into things with them, you're uncovering all kinds of other dead bodies, um, in the closet and, mm -hmm. and realizing that the scope of the project is actually probably different than what they themselves conceived. Um, and then it becomes sort of a, a sales process of trying to, you know, essentially act as a consultant and advise them on the most strategic way to use their money. Um, and then we, you know, the portion that you're talking about where you're defining the brief for, mm -hmm. uh, for a designer to start on, um, is something that the creative director gets involved with and together with the strategist, they're, they're understanding the opportunities and the challenges of the project and understanding the competitive frame for the project and basically coming up with a plan of attack, um, Writing the creative brief is itself um, a really interesting challenge because I've gone back and forth with how um, specific to be about the strategy versus how um, much room to give people to inject their own ideas into it. Um, you know, being really specific means that you get to something a lot closer to your vision as a creative director based on what you understand of the client problem. Um, but it also means that if you have three designers working on something, you might have less diversity between the concepts. Um, leaving it more open is a risk in some ways because you may be going back and forth quite a lot with designers about um, whether they're hitting the strategic goals of the project because they have less... Um, they just have less nuanced understanding of the client challenges because they haven't been in all those initial conversations at our studio, at least. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes in some studios, designers are involved um, here because we've found it to be really inefficient to have that many bodies involved up front. 
we tend to do a little bit of interpretation. Um, so yes, we there's basically a task force at the front end of a project that's doing all of that. And it's sort of the consultative and strategic side of the project um, before you even start thinking about design, you're, you're kind of getting your arms around what you might be designing and, and how, how you might um, have some opportunities to differentiate a client. Thanks. Um, again, this is, I can't tell you how like helpful this, <laughs> this is right now to, to, to hear some of this. Um, so that gives me, uh, I want to ask a follow-up question to something you mentioned earlier, but also, so, so I hand the brief to the students. And or it would I'd probably be better served as an educator uh, uh, going into class and saying, here's my problem. This is what I think the solution is. And then let the students then pitch me the brief. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it sort of depends on what you're trying to train designers to do here. Um, the skill of coming up with the brief is really left to the senior staff and mm -hmm. it's something you end up working your way up to and shadowing. Um, so somebody who's walking through the doors, who's recently graduated from a design program is not expected to have had any exposure to that whatsoever. Their special move is, is way more on the side of they've been handed a brief and what do they do with it? Yeah. Um, but if you have students that are interested in, strategy, then yeah, absolutely. That would be an amazing um, exercise. And I think it would also give them a lot more empathy for um, <laughs> what their, what the senior staff is going through to hand them something that neatly packaged. Um, I do find that, that there's a bit of a mystery for some people around like, how does that brief come to be? And it's taken for granted to some degree. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would it would be an interesting exercise for sure. All right. Um, so the in the follow up um, that I wanted to ask was, you mentioned after the discovery phase, you start pulling your teams together, whatever those teams are. Um, how do you communicate in those teams? Do you use Slack? I mean, is it all internal? Do you have some kind of project management system you use? Um, Slack, it is actually. We we wind up having. Well, we've got a lot of sort of um, company-wide Slack channels, depending on the office you're in or the you know type of job you have within the company. But then each project will get its own Slack channel that people can jump in and jump out of, or just lurk in if they want to. Um, and we try and have as much you know discussion in there as we can for everyone to see, if possible. Uh, unless you know you're gathering for a meeting elsewhere, so that uh, if somebody's heads down working, uh, the Slack channel can just kind of you know compile this information for them, and they can come back later, read through the discussion that somebody else had, and benefit from it that way without having been interrupted beforehand. So I'm not sure whether or not something like Slack can scale, or if it can be used in a scenario if you don't, you know, if you're not able to trust the entire workforce to not. <laughs> Um, just being there all day, having a great time. But um, for us, it's been great and uh, has been a really natural sort of progression of communication techniques um, over the years, you know, starting with just the most basic of IM um, and how we were trying to use that in a very similar way. Slack really fills that role for us. Yeah, well, the, the reason I asked that question is um, 
graphic design had this like ebb and flow like at one point it used to be like you know there's a conductor and there was an orchestra and you had to have people like setting type and you know manipulating images and doing paste up and and so it was this you know this big conglomeration but then it became like the solo rock star once the computer came out and now it's going back out again where it's you know it's a team sport and right now in design education we don't we're still stuck in that team, in that solo rock star mode. And I'm just, you know, I, I, anything I can do to make students work together as a team or understand the team concept of design um, is, is basically what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we, we don't actually use a lot of pre-baked tools for project management. We have this very... Um, very custom put together series of processes where a lot of stuff happens in Google Drive, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff happens in Slack, and then we also have a few supplementary tools that help us like track time and resource. Um, so it's this bubblegum and tape system a little bit because we yeah. found that it, you know, no tool like Basecamp was actually meeting our needs. Um, so anything that is considered, um, you know, for posterity or really hinging around feedback, um, is put in a channel outside of Slack. And the two channels that we use are, um, Google docs where we keep the, the briefs and, you know, all of the kind of client surveys and all of the, all of the the stuff that you want the whole team to be able to access that is not the kind of file that needs to live on a server, but is either text-based or is a spreadsheet or, you know, like we have project trackers that show where we are in the phase of work and break out roles um, and tasks so that everyone can keep up on when stuff is due. Um, and then the other channel that we use is Redmine, which is like Jira. It's, it's basically just an issue tracking. Mm -hmm system. And what that's good for is, you know, when there's feedback rounds, it's, it's helpful, I would say, in design to just keep a central uh, source of truth for a piece mm -hmm. of feedback that came back and how it was circulating back and forth between a project manager and a designer. But where it really becomes super, super helpful is in production when design is interacting with development. Um, where all of our QA is done through this ticketing system that allows us to create a queue for people to be working through. And again, also provides the history of what happened with a particular issue and how it was addressed. Um, um, I, I'm glad you read my mind because that was one of the questions that I actually kind of forgot to ask was how do you, how do you record feedback? And so thanks for, <laughs> thanks for reading my mind on that one. <laughs> I appreciate it. That's all we have time for today on part one of episode 28 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Celie and Mark, for being so generous with their time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA, and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. 
If you want to discover more about the DesignEDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit us on the web at designedu.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at DesignEDU Today, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to the podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.